Good morning. My name's Tim Stratton. Many of you know that I was a youth pastor here for nearly a decade. Now I'm the director of a nonprofit organization called Free Thinking Ministries. I'd like to take a moment to welcome everybody here in the auditorium and to my friends in the venue. It's great to have you at Kearney Evangelical Free Church today. Let me ask you a question. Is Lex Luthor right? <laughs> I mean, he says, hey, if God is all good, then he can't be all powerful. And if he's all powerful, well, then he can't be all good. Well, why think a thing like that? Did you know that this is actually the number one reason for atheism in the world today? It's the number one reason why people don't believe in God. I've found this to be the case in my own experience. When I talk with atheists, those claiming to be atheists in middle school, all the way to college professors, when I ask them to give me one good reason that should lead any rational person to think that God does not exist, well, they typically respond with something quite similar as to what Lex Luthor just said to Superman. Well, Lex and company reached their conclusion based on all of the evil and suffering in the world. And in a sense, who could blame them, right? I mean, you could hear in Lex Luthor's voice there the, the pain and the, the evil that he suffered. You could see it on his face. He knew evil and suffering. He was abused as a child. He knew evil all too well, and he wondered why God didn't stop it. And I know people like this in real life that have been abused as children. We just saw it on the screen earlier in the announcements. Why does God allow evil and suffering like this? Sure, Lex Luthor might only be a fictional character, but there are many real people in this very real world who know this evil and suffering all too well. And I know there's people right here in this church that are swimming in the storm right now, the storm of suffering. This problem is too real, whether it be broken relationships, heartbreak, sickness, disease, divorce, death of a loved one. Oh, we know suffering, and some of us know it right now all too well. The problem of evil and suffering is the greatest objection against the existence of the greatest being. They reason something like this. They say, okay, well, if God exists, then by definition, well, he's perfectly good, and he's all-loving, and he's perfectly all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. So if God is perfectly good and all-loving, then he wouldn't want anybody to experience the suffering that we see in this world today. And if God is all-powerful, well, then God's got the power, he's got the strength, he's got the ability to step in and, and stop this evil. And what if God's all-knowing? Well, he would know how to use his power to stop all the evil in the world today. But, but evil is in the world today. We can't deny that. 
So I guess this being that supposedly is all good and all powerful and all knowing, God, I guess he doesn't exist. My son Ethan has found this to be the case. (laughs) Even when talking to middle schoolers who claim to be atheists. Ethan will say, why think a thing like that? Why think that atheism is true? And they respond with something quite similar as to what Lex Luthor just said to Superman. They think that evil and suffering are mutually exclusive with the idea of God, a perfectly good, all-powerful, and all-knowing being. And since they know evil themselves, God does not exist. And it's not just middle schoolers. Even when I talk with science professors at UNK, just not too long ago I was having a conversation with a science professor at UNK, and I showed him that he could not use science as justification for his atheism. Come back next week, that's the topic. We'll be discussing if uh, there's a contradiction or a conflict between the idea of God and the idea of science. But here's a little foreshadowing. I showed him that he could not justify atheism with science. So then I said, well, what have you got left? And he immediately resorted to the problem of evil and said something just like Lex Luthor said to Superman. This morning, I want to equip you with how to respond to objections like these. This is important if you hope to engage in evangelism. Many times people don't do evangelism today because they're scared about the questions that are gonna follow. So I hope to just add a tool in your toolbox this morning when it comes to evangelism. And also, Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I don't doubt the existence of God because of evil. Well, that's great. But you need to pay close attention because if you have kids, if you have grandkids, if you have neighbors, if you have anybody that you care about in this world, if you want to do evangelism and do it effectively, then pay close attention. Because this, like I said, is the number one reason why people struggle with the idea of God. And it's... it's, Not just atheists, but even people within the church. I can tell you, after being a pastor in the church for nearly a decade, this idea leads to a weak faith many times. If God is all good, then what's up with all the suffering in my life? And they doubt God. Even if it doesn't lead to atheism, they still have a weak faith. So I'm telling you, I see this question lead to weak faith at best and to atheism at worst. So it's important for you to follow along. Take good notes because it's important for you to offer truth. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do know that you are perfectly good and all-loving. I do know that you are all-powerful and I do know that you're all-knowing. And God, when I think about the fact that you are all-powerful and you love me and you love each and every one of us like you do, it brings me so much joy and it brings me peace. But God, this morning, I just pray that each of us will see a bigger and more beautiful image of you, that our faith would grow stronger, 
and that we would grow in a deeper love relationship with you too. And God, for those here this morning that are in the midst of the storm of suffering, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impact their lives right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the peace that passes understanding. God, we just pray for you to be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When the existence of evil causes doubt to the existence of God, I want you to remember three things. Three things that you're going to take home today, okay? The first thing that you need to remember is that evil is actually evidence for God. Consider this. When one thinks, this is wrong, or things should not be this way, or this is evil, well, the person making that claim actually, at least inadvertently, is assuming that God exists and heaven, a perfect state of affairs, the way things should be. We can come to this conclusion by examining one of my favorite arguments for the existence of God. It's called the moral argument. Let's look at it on the screen. It's two simple steps, two statements that lead to a powerful and logical conclusion. The first step of the argument simply says, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. All right, let's just stop right there because those aren't the kind of words that we usually use. So let me explain what that means. This first step of the argument just means this. Hey, if God doesn't exist, then there's nothing that is really good, bad, right, wrong, fair, or evil with anything. If God does not exist, there's nothing that's really good, bad, right, wrong, fair, or evil with anything. Next step, objective moral values and duties do exist. The conclusion follows logically. Therefore, God exists. This is, it follows like mathematics, right? If those first two statements are true, the conclusion follows logically. Now, many times when I am having conversations with those who are committed to atheism, like a religion, right? I'll point out a lot of times to atheists that they hold to their atheism with a blind faith. They have a blind faith in atheism. Whereas I like to point, as Christians, we have many reasons for our faith. We have a reasonable faith, and atheists have a blind faith. Now, if they're not willing to follow the evidence, I've just given them a logical argument for the existence of God. If they are unwilling to accept the conclusion of therefore God exists, then they've got to find something wrong with one of those first two statements. Like clockwork, they will reject the second statement. And they will say, no, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Those things that you feel are really good, bad, right, wrong, fair, or evil, those are just illusions. Those are illusory. They don't really exist. Now, if they say that, if they make that claim, then they can no longer use evil as their reason for atheism. And remember, that's the number one reason why people reject the idea of the existence of God today. So we can see this more clearly in a modified moral argument. Let's look at another argument. This time, it's going to have four steps. The first is the same as the last. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, if they offer evil as the reason for their atheism, 
Then we've got the next step. Evil exists. Three, therefore, this is a conclusion that follows logically. Objective moral values and duties do exist because some things really are evil. <laughs> right? Child abuse, it's really wrong. It's evil. Racism, it's really wrong. It's evil. Some things are really wrong and evil. Well, the final conclusion is powerful. Therefore, God exists. So you see, evil seems to be a, a hostile witness. The atheistic prosecuting attorney trots out evil in the courtroom of public opinion, hoping to persuade a few more young people to reject God. But then evil turns on the atheist and is actually proof for the existence of God. It's evidence for the existence of God. So you see, Evil is not their evidence. It's ours. Moreover, on a Christian worldview, we expect it. We expect evil. So evil is not their evidence. It's ours. That's the first thing I want you to remember today. Evil proves, logically, the existence of God. But why? But why, God? Why this kind of evil? Why this much evil? Sure, it's great. I mean, from a logical perspective, it's great that evil can prove the existence of God. But why? <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever experienced evil or suffering in some form or fashion. Is that everybody? <laughs> At least a little bit? Let me tell you, if you don't have your hand up, you're going to experience it at some point, in some way. Why? Why would a maximally great being who is perfectly good allow humans to suffer and experience evil? Why would God allow child abuse? Why would God allow the atrocities of ISIS? Why would God allow so much of the suffering that you and I experience today? An explanation is still needed. At least it'd be nice, right? It'd be nice. Well, this brings us to the second thing we need to remember. When the existence of evil causes us to doubt the existence of God. The second thing to remember is that a good God has good reasons for allowing evil. What's the, what do you think the main reason is that God created humanity? Why do you exist? Why did God create you? Well, I think that Jesus made it perfectly clear when he summarized the entire law in two easy-to-remember and simple commands. <laughs> he summarized everything in two statements. Let's take a look at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Here we can see that Jesus makes it clear. Hey, the first thing you need to do is to love God. Love God first. With every aspect of your existence, you love God first. And then the second thing you gotta do is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes on and says, hey, even love those who consider you to be an enemy. Love them too. 
So love everybody from your neighbor to your enemy. I think that includes all people. Love God first and everybody love everybody. Can you imagine what this world would be like if everybody actually listened and followed the teachings of Jesus? Man, this would be a great place. So you see, it's all about love. The objective purpose of your life, the purpose why you were created is to love. God created you and I on purpose and for the specific purpose to love and to be loved perfectly for all eternity. That's why you exist. And to do anything other than that is to miss the mark. That's what sin means. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it for eternity. <laughs> you were created to be loved and to love perfectly. So you see, that's the purpose of your life. So when we love, when we love others, we reflect Jesus. We saw in the Royal Family Kids Camp how they reflect Jesus to those kids who were abused. Oh, those kids see Jesus for the first time. When you choose to love, we reflect the nature of God. When we go out of our, our way to even love our own kids, they see Jesus. When we love our neighbors, when we love those who consider us to be enemies, they see Jesus. When we go out of our way to even love the unlovable, you're living life on purpose, for the right purpose. The reason why you exist is to love and to be loved. But think about this. That, that's why God created you. That's why you exist, is to be in a true love relationship with him. But if God wants to have a true love relationship with each and every one of us, guess what he's got to do? Guess what he's got to give you in order for that to happen? Free will. God's got to give you free will. Or true love, genuine love, can't happen. You see, if a person doesn't freely choose to enter into a relationship with another person, then it's not true love. For example, if a woman is forced to marry some man she did not want to marry, well, they might be married in the eyes of the government, but true love is not a part of that relationship. Now, I know many times when people see my wife and I together, they assume that somehow, I mean, I must have hypnotized her or brainwashed her or something because let's be honest, she's way out of my league, right? <laughs> People see us and they're like, those two don't go together. What's up with that? But I promise you, I didn't, I didn't brainwash her. I didn't hypnotize her or anything. She freely chose to say yes to my, mar my marriage proposal. I got down on my knee. And I, I did, I influenced her. I mean, over time, I, I, love, I, you know, I showered her with love and attention and gifts and things like that. And one day I got down on my knee and offered her a diamond ring. And I asked her to be my bride, to marry me, to enter into this true love relationship. And she said yes. She could have said otherwise. She could have said no. She had the ability to say no. But she freely chose to say yes to my marriage proposal, and that's why we are in a genuine love relationship today. True love is only possible between two persons who both freely choose to enter into that loving relationship together. So with that in mind, 
it's logically impossible for someone to force somebody to do something freely. That's on the same incoherent level as trying to draw a triangle with four corners or for a married bachelor to exist. Those things are impossible to exist. Even God cannot draw a triangle with four corners. Even God can't make a married bachelor. Now don't worry, that doesn't violate his being all-powerful. The big official word for that is omnipotence, okay? It doesn't violate God's omnipotence because omnipotence simply means being to do all things that are logically possible. And God can do all things that are logically possible, thank God. But since God cannot make married bachelors and he cannot draw triangles with four corners, he also cannot force people to freely choose to love him. So you see, if God desired to create a world where human beings had free will so that we could freely respond to his love, then given this free will, if free will is really free, then we could also freely choose to say no to God, to say no to Jesus. We could freely choose to turn away from God. We can freely choose to sin. You see, God didn't want robots. If God is going to create a world with true love, then he's got to give us free will because he wants more than programmed robots. He wants more than a puppet show. He wants true and genuine love with you. That's his desire. And the Bible makes it clear that God desires all people to choose to respond to his love and to say yes. That's salvation, you see. When you say yes to his love proposal and you enter into a true love relationship with your creator, that's salvation. That's what you were created for. And God makes it clear that he loves all people. John 3, 16, let's take a look at that. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in him and responds to his love relationship will have eternal life with him. If you doubt that God loves all people, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all to be saved. All to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's look at 2 Peter 3.9. If, if you still doubt. God doesn't desire anyone to perish. He loves. He is perfectly good and all loving. He desires to be in a true love relationship with everybody. He desires a relationship with you. But you see, God does not force anyone into this relationship. If he did, it would not be genuine love. It would not be what I call true love. God does not force anybody. He doesn't force us. He invites us. He invites. God invites us to be his friends. He invites us into this marriage. He offers a wedding proposal to be the bride of Christ, which is what the church is called, the bride of Christ. Likewise, he invites us to choose each and every day what is good. He invites us to make choices and how we think and how we act 
Paul tells us to take our thoughts captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5, before they take us. Colossians 2.8. We, we have the freedom to choose how we're going to think, at least some of the time. We have the freedom. We have free will. Because forcing someone into a relationship and calling it love isn't love at all. In fact, it's quite similar to something known as Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome occurs when somebody is kidnapped against their will. And then over the course of time, the person that's kidnapped starts to have feelings for their captor. So much so that they will say that they're in love with the very person who kidnapped them, the criminal. But we know that this isn't true love. It's psychological trauma. God doesn't want psychological trauma with us. He does not want Stockholm Syndrome with us. God desires a genuine love relationship with each and every one of us. So for true love to be possible with our Creator, God's got to give us an ability. An ability to choose or not to choose. To say yes to his marriage proposal or to say no thanks. I'll do life my way. He's got to give us an ability. And the Bible's clear that God gives us this free will. That God gives us an ability. Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If I had time today, I would give you scores of Bible verses. But let me focus on one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What follows from this verse? Let's think about it logically. Well, it's clear that every time you've sinned in your life, well, I better stop right there. Uh, I don't want to make any assumptions or jump to any conclusions. Is anybody here perfect? Raise your hand if you're perfect and you've never sinned. Anybody? Oh, okay. You're like me. I'm a sinner too. Um, that's good. We're all in the, wait, wait a second. What's that? Huh, interesting. I just got word that everybody in the venue had their hands up. I'm just kidding, venue. Just kidding. Okay. Yeah, nobody had their hands up, right? Nobody's perfect. And I don't have anything in my ear either. So, um, Anyway, what follows from 1 Corinthians 10, 13? It follows that every time you've sinned, that God provided a way out for you so that you did not have to sin. You had an ability not to sin. You had an option. <laughs> and if you sinned, then you failed to take it. This is the epitome of free will. So if somebody says the Bible does not teach free will, you take them to this Bible verse. You're responsible. Since you are able not to sin, you're responsible for your sin. <laughs> Since you're able not to sin, you're responsible for your sin. So don't say the devil made me do it. Take responsibility for your own actions and your own thoughts. And please, whatever you do, don't say God made me do it. We're going to have problems if you say that. 
And I hear far too many Christians today blaming their thoughts and actions on God. Do not say that. This Bible verse is clear that God's given you a way out and you do not have to sin. And I'll tell you what, if you think that God causes all of your thoughts and actions and that you're a puppet, then guess what? Lex Luthor's got a point. Lex Luthor's got a point then. But he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong, and we're going we're gonna to see why. You see, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is biblical evidence that you possess genuine free will. And if you want more, contact me. I can give you many more verses. So the same ability you have to do evil is also the same ability that you possess that allows you to love. Think about that. So when your ability to love is used in a backwards kind of way, well, that's evil. And here's a good way to remember that. Just remember that love, spelled backwards, is evil. I was never good at spelling. If you're like me, Thinking about all of this can make your head spin. So let me summarize. I mean, if you, if you take one thing out of here today, get this. God allows evil because of love. And isn't that a good reason to allow evil? We're talking about not just love on earth, but love for eternity with no end. Isn't that a good reason to allow a little bit of evil? So with that in mind, Lex Luthor's argument fails, doesn't it? Now, there's another good reason. I've given you one good reason so far that God allows evil. Let me give you another one. Let's go to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17. We see that evil actually prepares us for eternity. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, and let me tell you, Paul knew what it was like to suffer. <laughs> let me check it out. He, he provides a whole list of his sufferings. But he says here, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, that's a nice way of saying no pain, no gain. Think about it. After experiencing this world of suffering and evil and affliction, will you take heaven for granted where there is none of that? I don't know about you, but I won't. I've experienced too much of it here already, and I've seen even more. I'm aware of the suffering that occurs on this earth. When I'm in a place where there is none of that, I will not take it for granted. I don't know about you. Evil and suffering and affliction prepare us for eternity. I think that's what Paul had in mind. You know, a couple of years ago, I was helping with a kid's summer camp in Miami, uh, Pastor Kevin and I took some high school and college students down there on a couple different occasions. And at this one point, I was reading some Bible verses to these cute little elementary school kids in Miami. And they started asking me some deep questions. And so one of these questions that, that hit me, I was not prepared for. One of these little girls in elementary school asked me, but Tim, why would God let animals suffer? Why would God let animals suffer? Uh, you see, these questions aren't simply relegated to only those in the ivory tower, not just to those philosophers. We're talking about little kids in Miami asking me this question. And I came up with this 
diagram, this drawing on the spot. Well, I should say that God gave it to me. And I drew it on the whiteboard. Let me try to explain. Uh, let's take a look at it here. Uh, I explained that we live in this middle world, which is a combination of both good and bad. And this includes the bad of even animal suffering <laughs> and all the sufferings and evils that we experience and even the sufferings that we might not experience, but we don't, we don't even have to even see it. We just know it exists here in this world. So this world is full of evil. It's also got a lot of good stuff in it too, right? I enjoy life, but I also know that I experience evil. But I told them that the pain and suffering that we experience, and even that we're just aware of on earth, often leads people to Christ. And if you don't believe me, go to, listen to some testimonies right before baptism. I love listening to baptism testimonies. Because, and we're having baptisms next week, by the way. But nine times out of ten, you can guarantee that their testimony is filled with stories of pain, evil, suffering, and affliction. And that this pain and evil that they somehow experienced, whether it be physical or psychological or whatever, it pushed them to Christ. It broke them to their knees, and then they realized they're kneeling before Christ, and they asked God for help. They asked Jesus to take over because they couldn't do life on their own any longer. You see, sometimes suffering, most of the time, suffering pushes us to Christ. And when I explain to the kids, and it's only those who have a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ that experience heaven for eternity with no end, then if it's evil and suffering that pushed you to Christ, then that's a good reason for allowing it. It's a good reason. So I then ask the kids this question. Why would anybody in heaven take it for granted, take heaven, a perfect state of affairs for granted, after experiencing the evil on earth. That is to say, why would you take heaven for granted where everything is awesome after you've experienced this place? I think that's what Paul had in mind. And Paul also reiterates this in Romans 5, 3 through 4. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Rejoice in our sufferings? He says, because Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And I know this is true in my own life. When I review my life, these 43 years, and I, I see the times in my life where I would say that's some of the worst suffering, some of the worst evil that I've experienced. Well, it didn't seem like it then, but hindsight's 2020, right? And so when I look back, I can see, wow. It's during those times that I grew closest to Christ. And I was in so much pain and, 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 and suffering in some parts of my life where I didn't, even, I didn't even feel like I could utter a coherent sentence to God. I couldn't even pray. All I could do is just say, help! And sometimes I didn't even feel like God was listening in the midst of that suffering storm. But I look back now, with 2020 hindsight, and I'm like, wow, God, you answered that prayer in powerful ways. In fact, I wouldn't change a thing because God used evil for good. Huh. God used evil for good. And we see that from cover to cover in the Bible. 
In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 50, 20. Let's read it. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's go to the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. Paul again says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You gotta keep eternity in mind. If you look at the problem of suffering just through the lens of life on earth, then it won't make sense a lot of times. Sometimes it will. (laughs) But if you keep eternity in mind, God works all things together for good for those who love him, which is what I've been talking about. It's why you exist. God created you to love and to be loved by him. Don't reject his love. And think about how God has used evil for good. I mean, the, re- the cross, right? It was evil to nail Jesus on the cross. But wasn't that the best thing for humanity? <laughs> it was good that God allowed evil. It was evil what they did to him. And, and think about the disciples. The majority of them were killed for sharing the gospel, for, were, were killed for sharing the resurrection, It was evil to kill them. But you know, the disciples were in a position to know if that resurrection story was true or false. And people don't die for lies that they know are lies. And they were all willing to die, and they, most of them, were killed for their faith, for their testimony, for their reports. And people noticed and said, people don't die for things they know are false. They were in a position to know if it was true or false, and they died anyway. They were willing to die. It must be true. And this was one of the reasons why Christianity exploded. It was the catalyst of this explosion of Christianity, which is why this church exists in Kearney, Nebraska today. Now, it was evil to kill the disciples, but God used it for good. God used it for good and for your good. God uses the free and evil actions of man for the ultimate good of man. Anyway, long story short, that drawing I drew for the kids, it helped the kiddos in Miami. Hope it helped you a little bit too. Let me close with one more thing. There's one more thing to remember when the existence of evil causes you to doubt the existence of God. Remember this, that God experienced evil and suffering so that you do not have to experience evil and suffering for eternity. God doesn't need to suffer. He never needs to. But he did for you. I just mentioned Romans 5 a few moments ago. Let's go back there, Romans 5, 8. And Paul says, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So think about this love that God has for each and every one of you. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us, he experienced evil, pain, suffering, affliction. He experienced death so that you do not have to experience these things for eternity. God entered into creation to experience crazy suffering so that you do not have to for eternity. You see, the cross was enough. The cross was enough. There is no need for eternal suffering because Jesus paid it all. He doesn't need more of you to continue paying. 
Jesus paid it all. The cross was enough. You see, you do not have to pay into the, eter- the infinite future because Jesus paid the infinite sacrifice. So your suffering will come to an end if you know and love Jesus. The cross was enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you are perfect in every way. You're perfect in all of your ways. You're perfectly good. You're all loving. You're perfectly powerful. You're perfectly knowing. And you love each and every one of us. Lord, sometimes when we're in the midst of the storm of suffering, it doesn't always feel like it. But, but God, sometimes just knowing, knowing the truth helps us get through those storms. God, for those that are here today who are suffering, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impact their lives. Help them know and feel that love, your peace, your comfort. God, let them know that this body of Christ is here for them. But God, it's so good to know that you are perfect in all of your ways. Even when we are suffering, even when we're in the midst of the storm, as Paul says, we, re- we can rejoice in our sufferings when we know truth. And God, when people doubt the existence of you, when they doubt the truth of Christianity, we can point them to good reasons as to why a perfectly good God would allow evil because of love. Amen.